Section 1 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Christopher Collins. The Heirloom by T. Duthie Lyle. Dark Shadows. Look, look, Massey, Massey. There it is. Yes. There, there, there. You see it not? Nay, you must. Oh, God. You mean to say you don't see it now? Massey, you fooled me. Heaven forbid that you should. I, who almost reared you, gave you freedom. Gave it. No, I am wrong. Bought it. Bought it with a price. Ah, too, and at what a price. A price that cannot be counted in dollars or pounds. And now you laugh at me. Laugh at me, mock me, befool me, nay, ignore me now in this hour when all the world stands aloof, now that I can look to neither God nor man for aid. Now all my wealth is being measured at its proper worth. You too, Jules Massey, you side with all the world and leave me to face this dark, hideous shadow alone. <laughs> yes, there it is again. And the speaker started up and laughed out a long, hollow, delirious laugh, sounding like something unearthly something uncanny rather than the rational articulation of human tongue. Just then the chimes from the distant stable tower adjacent to the mansion fell upon his ear, and he stopped to listen and to count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, yes, the witch-doctress foretold that it should turn red and be a sign of evil impending when midnight music sounded at the rising of the moon. Massey, I say Massey, step out through the casement onto the terrace and tell me what of the night, when there is visible or hidden in the face of the moon. Nay, but stay one moment, Massey. Leave me not now. Ha, ha, there it stands again. Fool, you mean to say you see it not now? There, 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 there and the speaker as he sat up in bed pointed with his long, wasted finger and gazed wildly, with starting eyeballs and terrified stare at some imaginary object that appeared to his disordered vision to be moving across the room. The individual addressed as Massey was a coloured man of the true Negro type of the Southern American states. No half-bred apologetic representative of his people was Jules Massey, with his crisp woolly hair and a face which shone almost like some highly polished, ebony-carved visage of the shiny blackness of a block of coal. And yet there could be said to be nothing cringing, nothing of servility, notwithstanding his long years of servitude in the natural demeanour of Jules Massey. His personality was one of those which might be so far taken for anything that they may be almost said to be devoid of any distinct personality at all. A man that you might pass in a crowd or in the street and look upon as a negro, or rather you would have said a coloured gentleman, of superior intelligence, culture and physique, an admirable specimen of manhood notwithstanding the blackness of his skin. God forbid that I should aver the blackness of skin should necessarily be associated with any inferiority of mental calibre, however downtrodden and oppressed, but early emancipation from the debasing influence of slavery and the training of an intelligence of natural brightness, the sowing of the seed of knowledge and good ground, had been productive of its result, and Jules Massey, though born of slave parents on a Virginian plantation, his childhood surrounded with all the horrors of slave life, prior to those sanguinary feuds between North and South which brought with it the freedom of every slave, by education had risen immeasurably above the ordinary run of his class and race. 
His superiority may have been due to his own brightness, his own quickness of perception. The slave boy Jules Massey had become the body servant of his master even at a boyish age, thereby enjoying comparative ease and freedom and the advantage of frequent travel with his master, while others of his kith and kin were sweltering on the hot rice and cotton fields and felt the smart of the overseer's whip and the heat of the southern sun. Far from his native state, attendant on his master, Jules Massey often lounged in comparative luxury when his own parents or brothers and sisters endured the pains of slavery at home. But it must not be thought that in those hours of idleness and ease, Jules Massey forgot the lot of those still dear to him, for affection is no stronger in the breast of the white man than in the heart of the slave. By no means, but more of this anon. Stepping through the casement of the library, a small room adjoining and leading to the sleeping apartment, and now the sick room of his master, where he lay raving in the throes of delirium, Jules Massey stood upon a broad terrace which, overshadowed by a veranda-like roof, the ornamental ironwork supports of which, overrun with a luxurious growth of creeping plants, formed in the summer evenings an enticing and attractive retreat. A retreat, alas, which the master and owner of that house, as he lay there within on his bed of sickness, seemed little likely ever again to enjoy. As the favoured body-servant stood for those few minutes out in the stillness of the summer night, all nature seemed to be supremely still. Around him, far on every side, there extended lawns and parterres, in which every botanic rarity seemed to bloom. Here groupings of costly marble statuary glistened in unsullied purity of hue and matchless symmetry of form. There a tiny cataract or gurgling fountain bubbled forth crystal waters of a purity to emerge the very gods. Here might be seen a grot within the seductive shade of which even fairies might not disdain to woo, there a mimic cavern from whose fern and moss-grown depths the fall of limpid waters soothed the very air. Beyond this, on every side, the steep and declivitous hillsides were clothed with woods, while far and near, over the glades and woodlands, over the meadows and cornfields, gilding the bosom of the broad still lakeless with a golden and silvery sheen, rising in all the fullness of its glory, shone out the great red face of the harvest moon. In its perfect peace and restfulness, all nature around him was fair and beautiful to look upon, a profound and peaceful silence broken only by the distant occasional yelp of a fox in the deep woods, or the weird unmusical hoot of a barn owl as it flew across the shadowy lay, seemed to reign supreme. As his eye roamed over the wide domain of Fernwood, it seemed to offer all that human heart could desire, and yet its lord and master, the inheritor of all those fair, broad acres, of all those tree-crowned hilltops, of all those dark, still glades, he whose sole prerogative, whose sole vocation it was to enjoy, was bereft of all power of enjoyment, and now that the clouds of death seemed fast settling around and closing in their impenetrable darkness before his eyes, and now that the relentless angel stood ready to beckon him away, neither his broad acres nor his accumulating millions could secure to Bertram Gnault a moment's respite, or buy back for him satisfaction, or retrieve one day of squandered life. Had not Vernwood and its princely revenues which he owned given him years of opportunities of pleasure, real and substantial, yet now would he not gladly have bartered all his patrimony for a single year of extended life. The body-servant stepped back from the calm and peaceful moonlight into the study, and thence into the sleeping-room, where, tossing and delirious, Bertram Gnault lay. How wide, how solemn, and fearful a contrast from that peaceful moonlit scene without was his master's chamber within, where he raved and struggled against the pangs and anguish of remorse, for the consciousness of his wasted opportunities and much of ill-spent life. 
The room where the sick man lay was a lofty chamber of no great size, but panelled around with oak panellings of some past epoch, which, although darkened by age, were yet untouched by time or undisfigured by the ravages of decay. A single oil lamp standing on a table and turned onto half its brightness served only in a modified degree to dispel the darkness, while doors and windows were draped with heavy, sombre hangings, lending to the interior an added gloom. But over all this there loomed, with unmistakable foreboding, the one great shadow, the feeling of the certainty of impending death, the gaunt wrecked frame, the wild stare, the delirious laugh, the pallid features, drawn, sunken, and emaciated by sickness and disease. But that haunted imagination was not the death of the sinless, it was not the calm, peaceful ebbing away of a well-spent life, it was not the heavenward flight of the soul from its tenement corporeal of clay, but it was the tumultuous struggle of the haunted spirit, the fierce fight to escape the cold, inexorable grip of the grave. Neither did the King of Terrors seem merciful to cut short the agony of dissolution, for day by day the life of Bertram Gnault seemed to trickle away as it were by a rill of torturing agony, rather than to sink as the sun of a summer's day calmly to its appointed rest. The days and nights during which he knew that he was slowly, slowly dying gave him in his lucid intervals only the more time to look back with contrition on so much of wasted life, a life from which he had left out very much that he ought to have done, into which had entered much that ought not to have been done. Who among us but must confess the same? But Bertram Gnault, as he lay there, thoughts of contrition came and laid their burden of remorse upon his spirit as with a heavy hand. Strong as he once was and weak as he now lay, he had squandered health. Rich as he was, he had squandered and misused his wealth. But whatever the fortune or vicissitudes of his family might once have been, Bertram Gnault, as he lay on that bed of sickness or of death, was even yet the possessor of such wealth as was literally and practically almost beyond one man's powers to dissipate utterly or to spend. If a millionaire must be defined as a man who owns ten hundred thousand pounds, then the extent of Bertram Gnott's wealth surpassed by long figures the limits of that magic word, and somehow, as he lay there, he seemed troubled far more in its possession than other men would have been in the lack of it. When he was gone, what could possibly become of all his riches? He had asked himself the question day by day, and it was a question which would or which might have puzzled a wiser head than had grown upon the shoulders of Bertram Gnott. As the two men were together in the gloom of the darkened room, it was with genuine and unfeigned pity that the black-faced negro looked on the once strong form of the white sufferer, now so prostrate, now laid, now sunk so low, so very low. Black and white as they were, they had been almost boys together. There was infinitely more between them than between master and servant. It was companionship, brotherhood. For as Bertram Gnott lay there every inch a wreck dependent for even bread and water, so Jules Massey stood there every inch a gentleman and a man. Within his stalwart frame there throbbed a woman's tenderness of heart, united to the muscular development of an athlete. He had a child's gentleness of hand. He reminded you of the steam hammer, which can be used with a gentleness to crack a nutshell without injuring the contents, or to exercise the power to flatten a block of iron or of the strength of an elephant, which he could employ either to lift a needle or uproot a forest tree. Such men, whether black or white, are the highest development of manhood, the nearest to perfection of our race. And Bertram Gnault, too, 
mere shadow, mere caricature, mere mockery as he now was of his former self, had in his earlier days been no despicable specimen of man. His tall form once stood erect and graceful as the reed, his head of fine intellectuality was but sparsely covered with locks of thin, dark hair. His face was handsome, though its right side was lightly scarred with some long-hewed wound of childhood which he must carry to his grave. Its expression would have been fine, but was somewhat marred by a cynical, almost mocking, almost Mephistophelian smile, which either designedly or by accident he had heightened and intensified by the cultivation of that well-stiffened pointed moustaches on his upper lip, like those we see in Goethe's representations of the character of the tempter in his immortal legend of Faust. This is an idea of what Bertram Gnott had been rather than what, as he lay prostrate on that bed a broken man who had seen hardly more than fifty years of life, he now was. But the mere wreck of the body, that was not all. The mind, too, was unhinged. With his weakness of body, his mental infirmity gained in ascendancy. His imagination seemed ever to be haunted with some spectre, which, although invisible to the eyes or mind of the body's servant, left the poor victim of the hallucination but few intervals of lucidity or mental peace. And when these short intervals of right-mindedness came, these rifts in the dense banks of cloud that enclosed his mind, the poor sufferer would sink back upon his pillow exhausted, only to start up wildly as a dark shadow of his delusion again rose up and took possession of his mind. End of section 1